Welcome back to the People, Planet, Prosperity podcast, hosted by Young Canadians for Resources and Canada Action. Today, we will be joined by Christopher Gully, Director of Communications for the Canadian Nuclear Association. All right. Hi there, Christopher. It's a pleasure to have you on the People, Planet, Prosperity podcast today. Uh, Just for our listeners, if you could quickly say who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Christopher Gully, and I'm the Director of Communications of the Canadian Nuclear Association here in, in Ottawa. Okay. And how did you get into that? Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm a bit of background on myself. I mean, in, about, uh, let's say, 10, 15 years ago, I got into communications, and my first work was in the environmental sector. I was working for an environmental NGO, uh, really focused on uh, climate change and uh, emissions reduction. And then that job led me to the International Energy Agency, um, which is based in Paris, uh, where I spent the better part of the last 10 years uh, of, of my career working uh, at a very, very high uh, level on, on energy systems and, and the complexities of the energy transition. Um, and I wanted to bring some of that back uh, to, to Canada, you know, where I was uh, raised, and, and I saw an opportunity to, to work in the nuclear sector, and uh, I think um, can play a major role uh, in in both climate change, energy security, economic growth, uh, and uh, I think uh, has has some work to do in terms of communications. And I felt like uh, I could play a, uh, a big part of that. Okay, and I think you've somewhat alluded to this already. But on a personal level, why does nuclear power matter to you? Sure. I mean, it's it, it, it's pretty simple. Really. You know, at the end of the day, I want can be a a better place for everybody. I want it to be cleaner. I want it to be safer. I want it to be happier. Um, and a lot of that comes down to three things. One, environment, right? Uh, I believe that climate change is an existential threat uh, globally and here in Canada as well. Um, and we need to do our part to reduce emissions and, and make sure that we can be a part of the solution. But at the same time, uh, I don't believe that we can do that at the expense of our livelihoods and standard of living because Frankly, I, I would suggest that the vast majority of people um, care more about their day-to-day lives than they do care about um, uh, uh, the world at large. Um, and that's not to say they're bad people or that they're selfish. It's just that most of us are just trying to get by. Um, and so it's important for me then to, to work in an industry where I can see these two things succeed at the same time, you know, have an impact on climate while at the same time uh, maintaining or strengthening um, economic growth. Uh, and in Canada in particular, you know, it, it varies by country, but in Canada, uh, I really think that nuclear power, you know, lies at the intersection of those two things. And so um, working in this industry, you know, gives me an opportunity, therefore, to, to, to realize goals that I think are important to, from a um, climate standpoint, uh, while at the same time uh, doing so in a way that is, is practical and achievable. Okay. Well, and I love the, the environmental background that you bring to this. I think it really adds an interesting character to the things you're saying. Um, before we get too much farther, though, I know a lot of people uh, aren't familiar with nuclear power. I mean, as you said before, most people, they're more concerned with, you know, putting food on the table, keeping roof over the head. They don't think too much about the fuels behind how that keeps going. So could you quickly explain to us what nuclear power is in, like, simple terms? Sure. I mean... Let's step back a bit and talk about how we generate electricity in general, right? Um, for the most part, we generate electricity by spinning a turbine and spins a generator. 
Um, we can do this a whole bunch of different ways. In Canada, the most common way is using hydroelectric, right? So we have water at the high level, flows down, water at a low level, and as it flows down in the turbine, that generates electricity. We can spin turbines other ways, you know, wind turbines are a, a classic renewables way of doing it, uh, or we can burn um, some kind of combustible material like natural gas or coal, which creates steam, which then turns into turbine. Nuclear power, slightly more complex, but essentially the same end goal. What we're doing is we're using fission, which is breaking apart atoms, and in the breaking apart of those atoms, we release heat and energy, and that heat then uh, heats up some kind of um, uh, substance, which uh, in, in most part uh, in Canada can be water. That water then generates steam. That steam passes into turbine. So really, just um, it's a very complicated way to generate steam, but at the same time, an incredibly efficient way. Okay, so. When we look at the development of nuclear power in Canada, where where do we kind of start with it, and how has that progressed over the years to where we are today? Yeah. Um, so nuclear in Canada started um, like nuclear in a number of countries, which was uh, a lot of research and development uh, from the defense industry, uh, you know, around the time of World War II and just after. But but in Canada, it quickly separated. Um, uh, you know, as you know, Canada never got into uh, nuclear weapons. We, we do not have nuclear weapons, but we started to rapidly build out our, what we call our civil nuclear uh, energy program. And we wanted to do so in a way uh, that did not contribute to the rise of nuclear weapons. And so Canada developed a type of technology called CANDU, um, which you might have heard of, which uh, is C-A-N-D-U, which stands for Canadian uh, Deuterium Uranium, um, which refers to the both the type of water used uh, and the fuel that's used um, within the Kandu reactor. And the, the special thing about Kandu, which was developed um, uh, in the mid part of the last century, is that it uses unenriched uranium. So this is uranium that comes directly out of the ground. Uh, it doesn't have to be enriched. Um, and what that means geopolitically is that we were able uh, to export our Kandu technology without fear of that leading to weapons uh, proliferation around the world. Um, and because of the success of CANDU, um, the nuclear power sector in Canada, you know, saw a huge increase in use um, through uh, the 1970s uh, in Canada. Then, of course, things started to change. Um, we had uh, a shift in public perception, um, uh, maybe not entirely fairly, about the safety of nuclear power. Uh, a series of, of events, which I imagine we'll talk about uh, in a little bit, that, that changed uh, how politics, uh, politicians felt about nuclear power. And so um, nuclear was uh, continued to play an important part of the Canadian energy mix for many years, but it, it didn't grow. Um, but that has shifted. It has shifted dramatically in the past couple of years for a couple of key reasons. Um, one, obviously, uh, is, is climate change and the recognition that we need to reduce emissions um, in Canada if we want uh, to meet our climate goals. Um, and two is energy security. Um, the, the invasion uh, of uh, Ukraine by Russia um, cut off energy supplies, specifically natural gas, uh, to a huge number of countries around the world. And, and they suddenly came to the realization that they needed to ensure um, that they could provide energy to their people uninterrupted um, without fear of it getting cut off due to a geopolitical event. Um, and at least for Canada, nuclear power absolutely checks that box. You know, we are the number two exporter of uranium in the world. Uh, we have uh, massive um, domestic reserves, um, and we have our own, you know, made-at-home um, Canadian nuclear technology. 
Um, and so because of this shift in thinking, um, we're seeing sort of a new era of nuclear beginning. Um, and here in, uh, in Ontario, for example, last week uh, we saw the first announcement of um, potential new large bills um, in Canada, first announcement in, in 20 years. Um, and so um, along with other developments, such as uh, small modular reactors, uh, you know, the future of nuclear in Canada is, uh, is really entering a new phase that we're very excited Okay, that certainly is exciting to hear. Um, and I imagine that with that expansion, it also brings with it lots of new opportunities, especially in terms of jobs, etc. Um, so that's a great thing for our listeners to hear. Um, want to quickly touch bases on where or how is nuclear meeting Canada's energy needs today? Um, so if we look at Canada as a whole, uh, nuclear supply is uh, roughly 15% of Canada's electricity supply. Um, but there are only actually two provinces that currently use nuclear for power generation, uh, and that is Ontario and New Brunswick. Uh, so for an Ontario, it's 60% um, of electricity supply uh, here um, in this province. Um, uh, but that that is a change. Uh, we have uh, Saskatchewan, for example, uh, has announced its intention to explore the possibility of, uh, of building uh, a reactor in the early 2030s. Um, Alberta uh, has uh, talked about you know, the vast potential for small modular reactors, um, both on grid and support industrial processes such as uh, um, resource extraction. Um, and other provinces as well uh, are, are now talking about nuclear, and whereas they might not have before, including you know, Nova Scotia, um, and even Quebec is, is, is quietly discussing it as well. And, and the reason for this is, is that uh, we're entering this phase of what's going to likely be rapid electrification. So if we can take a step back and talk about the Canadian energy system. Um, a lot of people like to say that we have a clean electricity system, and this is true, right? 80% of our electricity system comes from uh, non-emitting sources, mostly hydro plus nuclear. 20% then we're talking natural gas and coal. But electricity only accounts for 20% of our total energy use in Canada. The other 80% for things like transportation, for uh, residential commercial heating, uh, for industrial uh, use uh, for heat, um, this is all, uh, for the most part, fossil fuels. And so, so sure, we can quickly decarbonize that last 20% of our electricity system, but if we're then going to decarbonize the rest of the energy system, that means using electricity for that, which means that we're going to have to double, triple, or even more um, increase our electricity supply. Um, and, you know, we've been really fortunate in Canada to, to have hydro resources that we could rely on. Um, the energy of many countries around the world, so many uh, rivers and lakes that we were able to rely on to generate clean electricity. Um, but we're nearing capacity on hydro. You know, there are only so many dams that we can build. Um, and dams are also increasingly complicated to build because, frankly, uh, they have a major impact on, on ecology but also local communities. And so the problem comes with things, and you're saying, how are we going to double or triple our electricity supply? Um, we're not going to build new dams. We um, can't meet it with variable uh, sources alone, uh, and, and they see nuclear uh, as, um, as a really promising alternative. So, um, and it already sounds like this is, and the answer's kind of been uh, mentioned here, but how critical is nuclear power for Canada's energy transition? I mean, I like to... There's something that my old boss at the International Energy Agency used to say, is that, um, you know, you can do an energy transition with almost any technology, but 
you want to do it in the way that is uh, cheapest, uh, the most affordable, the most economically beneficial, and uh, and and he used to say that the energy transition would be much more expensive, and much more complicated than um, and that's the way I see it. Um, you can aim for a future in Canada that is potentially fully uh, powered by uh, very renewable hydro and energy storage, but frankly, we don't see that future yet. Um, technology, the energy storage, long-term energy storage technology uh, doesn't necessarily exist. It's not on the market. Um, and the pace at which variable renewables have been able to be rolled out, though you know they're incredibly cheap and they can be rolled out very quickly, has not kept pace growth and demand. And so without yeah. nuclear, we just frankly see a, a future where we're going to have potential uh, electricity supply shortages, and also we will be meeting our climate goals much, much, much later uh, uh, than, than we would want to um, if we were able to meet them at all. Well, I know those are both very important topics for both. I mean, electricity usage, I think any young person with all the devices and online programs we use gets the importance of having a steady supply. Um, for any of us who've ever had to accidentally pop out of an online university class because our laptop died, uh, it's certainly pertinent. But then also when it comes to those climate goals, definitely another big, big focus and, and concern for young Canadians. So it's really cool to see how that the, this this uh, energy source is part of that discussion. Um, one thing, though, that we obviously come across uh, in our work is people have a lot of uh, negative assumptions about nuclear power. So what I really want to dive into now is let's 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 get rid of some of those. Let's dispel some of those myths that might be out there. Um, and maybe I'll start with a couple that I have, and then if you want to add any more, we can go into that. Um, but first big one. We've, you know, you hear the news reports. There's been historical examples. Uh, accident. What can you say about that? Yeah, let's talk about safety. Um, I mean, I get it, right? I, I grew up hearing what you hear about nuclear in pop culture, in media, in comic books is uh, meltdowns, right? Meltdowns, radiation exposure, uh, nuclear waste leaking. Um, but it's just it's, it's so, so far from reality, and this is really unfortunate. So if you don't mind, I can pose a question back to you. Absolutely. Uh, can you name the single um, greatest energy-related disaster of the 20th Ooh. Off the top of my head, I can't. But what's, what's one in, in the basis of this conversation that might come to mind? Uh, Fukushima? Fukushima, sure. I mean, the 21st century. Sure, yeah. So... Um, 20th century, most people would say Chernobyl, but I'm going to come back to that. So let's talk about Fukushima, Chernobyl, Shima, right? These are the three big nuclear events people talk about when you come. Three mile island happened in the U.S. No death, no health effects, um, and ultimately uh, many of the reactors there continue to function. And long term, that site is going to be fully decommissioned, fully cleaned up, no effects at all. Was it a uh, Embarrassing incident for the industry? Absolutely. Was it a mistake? Yes. Was it a big disaster? Um, not really, no. Let's talk about Fukushima, the most recent one. Um, in terms of the synapse, I mean, absolute, massive, massive disaster. We're talking about tens of thousands of people died due to the tsunami and the earthquake. Um, but the number of people who died due to the meltdown uh, was one. One worker um, who unfortunately ended. 
tragically, was exposed to, to much higher levels of radiation than, than he should have been, and he died as a result. Um, but that was it. Um, there were many more deaths in Fukushima from the fear of nuclear. Uh, so these are a lot of elderly people who were evacuated from the area who died due to the stress of the evacuation um, that had nothing to do with radiation whatsoever. Um, and we're seeing that now again with the, all this discussion about the, the release of wastewater from the Fukushima na uh, nuclear plant. It's, um, it's fear of something that is frankly not that big. Um, and then let's talk about Chernobyl. Chernobyl is a big one, right? Um, absolute tragedy, massive disaster. We're not going to pretend that that wasn't a problem. Um, but again, the myths and the reality are quite different stories. Decades after the fact, if you look at what the WHO has said, that the World Health Organization, they estimate, you know, somewhere between a few dozen and a few hundred people who died as a result of the meltdown, and then some thousands of people across Europe who uh, developed cancers that might have been related. So, so yeah, yeah, that's a big deal, and that's not something that we should take lightly. Um, and I think there were a huge number of lessons learned from, um, from Chernobyl that uh, the industry took on board. But let's get back to the question I asked you: What is the single greatest, you know, disaster, um, energy-related disaster of the 20th century? And this was actually the the Banqiao Dam in China, which burst in 1975 uh, due to a typhoon, which killed somewhere between 25,000 and 250,000 people and destroyed about 5 million homes. Um, okay. and, and I'm not going to go here and say, therefore, hydro is incredibly dangerous, right? Um, but uh, even the, the dam that burst uh, in Ukraine, whether intentional or not, uh, last month, I mean, that displaced, again, thousands and thousands of people and caused a huge amount of damage. But we're not, therefore, saying that hydro is incredibly dangerous. And so if you all don't Right. Um, we've got three major nuclear accidents talked about, and we're talking about hundreds to perhaps thousands of people that have died as a result. But we're talking about 18,000 reactor years experience that we have globally operating nuclear power. 400 nuclear plants around the world have been operating nonstop, 24 hours a day, as of 18,000 reactor years, just those few um, uh, safety events. And so when you do the math, you look at the amount of power produced versus the actual harm caused, it is easily one of the safest forms of power generation available. It's actually statistically safer than, than rooftop solar, for example, because um, people tend to fall off ladders. Ladders are more dangerous than nuclear power, you know? I mean, walking across the street is more dangerous than nuclear. But, but as human beings, we have a really hard time estimating risks. Um, and because nuclear is complicated, um, we therefore assume that it's dangerous. Um, but we do dangerous things all the time. Right? I mean, in flying in an airplane, number one, incredibly dangerous compared to nuclear power. Number two, um, you get more radiation exposure from flying in an airplane than you would standing in a nuclear waste field. You know, I mean, we're just, I think, as a public, not very good at understanding um, And very quickly then, in terms of nuclear waste and safety, because I think this is important, you know, nobody's ever died from nuclear waste. Um, like, that's not to say it's not dangerous, right? If I took a kangaroo wool bundle out of the reactor um, and held it in my hands, I'd be dead very shortly after. But the same can be said of any number of industrial processes. You know, if you walk into a steel mill and you hang out with molten steel flying all over the place, you're going to be dead very quickly as well. But you don't do that because it's dangerous. Um, and, and nuclear waste is the same thing. You know, we know how to handle it. It's simple. 
Um, we know how to do dangerous Okay. Well, and I think that's very interesting too. Like when we look at the actual data and statistics, we see a huge discrepancy in the way that people view this and in what it actually is. Um, and you've you've addressed a bit of that, but like, what do you think are some of the main causes that lead to that perception? Um, I think it's two things. One that I alluded to before, which was um, uh, it's it's complicated. Nuclear, for most people to understand it, you have to have some certain level of understanding of of, of physics. Right, um, and a lot of people fear what they don't know. Um, you can see a wind turbine out in the field. You see it spinning. You understand that somehow that spinning is making energy. Intuitively, it makes sense. Right, but nuclear power is not intuitive to a lot, and I think therefore that leads to some kind of apprehension. Um, and apprehension is fear, and then that leads to um, people just not trusting. Right? That's part of it. The second part um, is that. Um, radiation is invisible. Um, it is something that you can't see. It's dangerous, but it's invisible, and therefore it makes it even much more scary, right? I, I talked about working in a steel mill. You see molten steel, you know to get away from it. You can see it. Radiation uh, And I think that leads to a certain amount of fear as well, just based on, on that um, uh, being unknown. Um, but the third thing, and I think the thing that is the biggest issue for us is um, the history of nuclear power and how it was tied in uh, with nuclear weapons, um, and the idea that uh, that somehow these two things are related, which which frankly they're not. And so what we saw in the 1960s and 70s is the rise of this environmental movement that was uh, tied very very closely to a banned bomb, saying we don't want nuclear weapons, we want a peaceful green, you know, earth uh, for for us and our children. Um, and it, unfortunately, it conflated these two issues: um, nuclear weapons and civil nuclear power. Uh, and that just kind of compounded over the years, um, and it led to uh, a lot of, you know, the perceptions of nuclear power um, in 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 pop culture as being something that is 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 dangerous and scary. And, you know, I grew up on The Simpsons, where you look at a nuclear power plant that was leaking green ooze out of the back and, and, and making three-eyed fish, right? No basis in reality whatsoever. But many more people watch The Simpsons than take a high school course in nuclear physics, right? So ultimately, we are, as an industry, I think, up against um, a solid wall of misconception um, uh, that is not intentional. You know, I don't think people go out of their way to criticize or, or dislike nuclear power, but it's just it's the way they grew up, and, and, and it's up to us to try and uh, help them see that it's not nearly as scary or, or dangerous as they think. I think it's interesting how you mentioned these pop culture references, because obviously that is probably the primary way that most young Canadians actually interact with the nuclear industry and mm -hmm. that subject. Um, I don't Have you ever heard of the show, uh, or it was a HBO show on Cher Chernobyl? Did you yeah. see that show? Yeah, I mean, frankly... Frankly, that was, that was pretty good. I mean, when it comes to Chernobyl, I don't think we should try and downplay it. I mean, it, that was a pretty good miniseries um, in terms of it stuck pretty well to the fact. Um, and it was terrifying because, frankly, Chernobyl was terrifying, right? But, again, I go back to the fact that we're talking 18,000 years of, of, you know, reactor hours experience. Um, Chernobyl was one after. Yeah. If, if you did a documentary on what happens day to day at the... You know, Pickering nuclear plant here in Ontario has been running since the 1970s. 
it's pretty dull. You know, it's not that exciting. And that's the reality of nuclear power. Well, and I think it's good, though, that, like, your industry can address the fact that, yes, like, there have been mistakes. Chernobyl, that's bad. Like, you can't can't sugarcoat that. So I think that builds more confidence in people when they're like, okay, like, this industry gets it, that that's not what we want. Like, we can't have that happen. Um, I, will, I will say, though, Sean, that, you know, we talk about Chernobyl um, as if nuclear power is, is some kind of um, singular industry around the world, right? But this was Soviet technology being run by Soviets. And to compare that Canadian technology being run by Canadians, uh, it's the same as saying that you're happy to take um, take an airline from um, uh, you know from Aeroflot in Russia. Just as happy as you would be to take uh, you know WestJet here in Canada. Um, my instinct is probably most people wouldn't be as happy to do so, right? Um, these are different people, different technologies, different times. Um, and this idea that nuclear is nuclear is really it's a bit uh, simplistic. Okay, well, and thanks for addressing that. I think mean, that's an important to make those distinctions. Um, I just want to have one like last comment on this uh, safety aspect. Uh, one one comment I often hear in discussions about nuclear is the idea that okay, we can acknowledge that it doesn't go badly that often, but when it does go badly, it goes really really bad. And I think this is like an enduring quote that many people have in their heads when they think about nuclear. So, what, how would you respond to that? I mean, I, I would just say go back to the data. You know. Um, when it goes bad, it goes really, really badly, but it's gone badly so few times, you know, in the history of the industry. And in Canada, um, it just hasn't happened at all. That's one thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that in each of those events, there were major lessons. Um, and so if you look at some of the small modular reactors that are currently being designed for deployment um, here in North America, they have um, what are called um, inherent or passive safety systems whereby um, they, just, they just can't melt down. It's not actually physically possible for them to melt down. Um, and, and the same is true of uh, you know, a lot of the upgrades that we've done on our Kandu fleet, um, since, obviously since Chernobyl, but also upgrades in Fukushima. I mean, um, the level of safety uh, and uh, the, the level of redundancy in these systems is so much greater um, that uh, um, we, we cannot expect, I mean, never say never, right? I mean, any in any industry can have eventually a problem, but the level of uh, regulatory scrutiny and the amount of effort that the industry puts into safety um, in nuclear is far far beyond other industries because we are so well aware of that. Um, that uh, I think you know we are constantly getting better. Um, is that going to reassure somebody? I don't know, but I would say. Don't look globally, you know? If you want to learn about the nuclear industry, look at Canada. Look at Canada's track record on safety. Um, most, uh, you know, I went through a career day at my kid's school and I was talking about nuclear and most of them didn't even know we had nuclear reactors in Canada at all. Um, and they just haven't thought about it. You know? The lights in the school were powered by nuclear electricity and they just hadn't considered it. So, you know, look in your own backyard, look at the safety record of your own industry and I think you'll feel really reassured that um, um, that we know what we're doing, and, and we're quite confident in, in our ability to do so uh, now and well into the future. So you mentioned, uh, I think it was the small modular reactors, have like extensive, extensive safety protocols to avoid meltdowns. Could you quickly like summarize what that kind of looks like in a little more detail? So, I mean, I don't want to say that they are safer than conventional nuclear, because our conventional reactors are safe in different ways. But 
what the SMRs, um, some of them have, is, is called a passive safety system. So, for example, what this would mean is, let's say that um, the reactor itself didn't have any power to cool itself anymore. All of its systems shut down. Um, the way these are designed is that the, the water within the reactor um, would boil up in the steam, recondense at the top, flow back down into the reactor to cool it again. And it would be a passive system that would happen without any external. This is different from a, an old system. Um, you know, for example, the, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine, concern right now after the dam burst was that it doesn't have power to cool its reactors. It needs external power to keep the reactor cool so that it can produce power again. Um, some of these advanced SMR designs, uh, you would not need that external power. Um, they would be able to continue to cool themselves passively um, until you could bring power back online and fix the problem otherwise. Okay. Well, I'm sure that's going to be reassuring for some of our listeners. Um, one other than issue that often comes up, waste storage um, and like the long-term implications of that because obviously some of this stuff is going to have um, a certain element of risk to it for long periods of time and periods of time that are make certain difficulties arise for containment. So how would you kind of uh, address that topic? I mean, I'm going to flip it on its head. I, I think as a nuclear industry, we're really proud of waste and the way that we handle nuclear waste. I mean, I, I cannot see another industry that uh, is able to fully account for its waste, pays for it entirely, uh, to take care of it, track it, store it, um, uh, and ensure that it's safely handled. I mean, there's no other industry that does that. You, you look at some of the, um, there are some waste products from industrial processes that never break down. We're talking about things like, uh, um, like uh, forever chemicals, PFAS, so we talk about like uh, mercury or lead. Um, these things often go into near-surface landfills uh, and they, they don't break down, ever. You know, for the entire history of the universe, that same mercury will be there. Nuclear waste, on the other hand, you take uh, a used fuel bundle out of a candle reactor, very dangerous, you put it in a pool, it cools for a few decades, you put it in dry storage, let's say up to 100 years, by that point, it's pretty cool, you can stand next to it. It's not that dangerous. Underground, another few hundred years, um, it's not going to be dangerous at all to the local environment. And after a few thousand years, it is back to the same level of radiation as the uranium ore that it came from. So essentially, we're taking uranium out of the ground, we're using it, putting it safely back into the ground, um, and it is getting back to the same level of radioactivity that it was originally, and then over the course of some other you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of years, it gets increasingly inert until it's lost. I mean, I, I can't see any other form of waste management that is as successful as that. Um, and as I said, you know, we pay for it. Um, here in Canada, we are set to um, hopefully decide on a site for a deep geological repository uh, in 2024, uh, start construction in the 2030s, and start filling it up with, um, with uh, the nuclear waste that we have safely had on site in our reactors uh, for decades. Um, and, and what are the what risks? Is, I, mean, I mean, the risk of something leaking out of that is so far from reality as to be uh, almost unimaginable. Um, we're putting basically a solid, um, solid fuel waste in a canister, five times underground with no groundwater. So, so let's say worst case scenario, right? Let's say worst case scenario, the containment did break, and some water that isn't there did get in. The amount of time it takes for water to move one meter through the Canadian Shield is about a thousand years. 
So if you so think if you about the amount of time it would take for water to get into a used fuel canister, leak out, go through the Canadian field, five centimeters to get into the groundwater, I mean, it's an unimaginable amount of time. And even if you did have by the time it got there, it wouldn't be radioactive. So is used fuel dangerous? Yeah. yeah. Is it easy to deal with? And do we have a solution? Again, absolutely, yes. Um, and there is so, so little of it. I mean, let, let me give you this, this factor. Um, let's say you, as an individual, you use nuclear power to generate electricity for your purposes your entire life. The amount of waste that would be produced from you alone would fit inside one soda can, one 350 mil soda can. That's it. And then that amount of waste, solid inert waste, put it underground, it goes back to being natural um, in due time. Um, I mean, as I said, we're proud of having that waste. I think it's a good news story. Uh, and um, frankly, I think uh, uh, if you talk about if you talk about threats to our environment, then um, you know, I, I'm seeing wildfires uh, out the window here in, in Ottawa. Um, we've got the uh, ice sheet melting. Uh, we got, you know, serious climate change on the horizon. Uh, nuclear waste is not a crisis. Nuclear waste is an easy problem to deal with. Well, I think this just emphasizes more the importance of looking at Canada's nuclear industry. Again, people make a lot of their assumptions based on the stuff they see elsewhere, but that's not how we run things in Canada. Um, and I think what you've outlined there really well describes that. Uh, this one is really simple. People see a nuclear power plant, they see the towers. What's the stuff coming out of the top? Steam. And that's water then. Yep. That's I mean, yeah, it, that's it. And because, as I said, we're, we're using fission to heat up water to make steam, drive a turbine, steam goes out the top. It's that. Okay. Uh, are there any other myths that you want to bust right now? Yeah, I, I think the big one that we're dealing right now is that nuclear is slow and expensive. Um, and I, I really want to tackle that because, um, uh, because again, as we've talked about you know, a couple times here, the Canadian nuclear industry is not the same as other nuclear industries around the world. So right now in Canada, um, two of our largest plants, that is the, the Darlington Nuclear Generating Station and Power, are undergoing refurbishment. So basically they are making themselves new again. This is the largest infrastructure project currently underway in Canada. Um, it is not only on time and budget, it's actually ahead of schedule. Um, and this is renewing these plants to be able to run for another 30, 40 years. Um, as uh, the International Energy Agency has said multiple times, form of low carbon power is refurbishing an existing nuclear power. This is cheaper than solar, cheaper than wind, cheaper than anything else. Refurbishing an existing nuclear power plant. And we're doing that in on time and on budget here in Ontario. The lessons that are learned from that um, and the workforce that is being trained from that is going to be directly applied to any new builds that we're doing here in Canada. Uh, and we're confident that we're going to continue to deliver um, on that. But, but, um, but yeah, yeah, your point around the world to nuclear power plants that have gone over schedule and absolutely you can. But you can also point to ones that are built really quickly, like uh, like in the UAE. Uh, they have just brought online their first ever nuclear power plant. They started construction in 2012. They brought it online in 2022, uh, despite being completely new to nuclear. And they're about to roll out um, more units in the future. So absolutely it's possible. Um, Canada did it in the 70s. France did it in the 70s. Um, we know how to do it. Uh, and, and I think our track record itself in terms of time. Um, in terms of budget, I just want to say something that power plants, 
thinking like this. It's no getting down, down, right? It is a very capital-intensive thing to build. But when you build an asset, can generate electricity at 90% capacity factor. That is 90% of the time it's able to be on for 60 or 80 years. This thing pays for itself very, very soon. So. Yeah, yeah, you can build, build a lot of cheap, cheap variable, variable renewables, renewables, and we should be doing that as well, don't get me wrong. But if you build an expensive nuclear power plant, then you are locking yourself into low-carbon, affordable electricity for generations or perhaps more than Okay. Well, Christopher, i got one last question for you. If you could tell young Canadians one thing that you want them to know about nuclear power in Canada, what would it be? I mean, aside from everything else we've said, um, I'll say that there are opportunities. I mean, the nuclear power industry in Canada is is uh, big, but it is set to grow, uh, and that's going to require workers. And these are good, long-term, career-defining jobs. You know, um, they are jobs that you uh, you go to university for, and you get paid well. Uh, and most of them are union jobs, uh, and uh, and you can have a great career in nuclear. So if you're a young person trying to figure out what you're doing with your career, or you're looking for a career change, um, look at what's happening, look at the new builds that are coming, uh, whether that's uh, here in Ontario or potentially in the West, or more than potentially, I'd likely say. Um, uh, you know, there are a lot of opportunities coming, and, uh, and you can be one of the first ones to, to, to jump on that boat. Awesome. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for your time.